When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. So, welcome to episode 76. We've got some cars, we've got some email feedback, uh, and a few topics. So, it should be another good, tidy podcast. So, first, let's uh, do what we normally do and we'll talk about things that we're driving. What do you got, Sam? Uh, last week, I took a road trip in the 2018 Honda Accord Hybrid Touring, um, which is the, uh, the the top trim level of the latest generation Accord Hybrid. Uh, and it took it to, uh, drove it up to northern Michigan to the, uh, the management briefing seminars in Traverse City. Um, and this is one very impressive car that is also very fuel efficient. Uh, you know, the, the Accord, you know, is technically a midsize sedan, although, you know, the, the what qualifies as midsize has grown substantially over the years. Um, and technically, if, if you ask the EPA uh, by their classifications, it's actually a large car. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> I kind of agree with the EPA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a big car. Yeah, I mean, you can call it whatever you want, you know, but, you know, it's it's, it's the competitor to the Camry and the Altima and the Fusion and uh, Sonata and, the, you know, all the other cars that nobody else seems to want to buy anymore uh, because everybody wants crossovers. And, and we'll get into more of that uh, a little later on when we get into some of the listener emails. But um, as far as this particular car goes, uh, you know, it was, you know, I. I liked it a lot. Um, you know, wasn't quite perfect, but uh, we'll get to that in a second. You know, the main difference from the previous Accord that I drove, of course, is the powertrain, uh, which is a two-liter um, Atkinson cycle four-cylinder engine. So it's, you know, it's basically the the same uh, a variation of the same engine that's in the uh, in the standard two-liter turbo Accord minus the turbo um, and with um, different valve control, so that it makes a a lot less torque than the uh, than a, a typical uh, naturally aspirated four cylinder would make, uh, but combined with the two motor hybrid system, it, it generates a total of about 181 horsepower and I think 232 foot pounds of torque. So with the the electric motor torque that comes on, you know, strong, you know, right from zero speed, it's you know, the drivability is fine. You know, it, it has plenty of performance. Uh, you know, it's it's not going to keep up, you know, with a two liter turbo Accord. Uh, but, you know, it, it doesn't need to. You know, it's it's got it's 
comparable performance to the base, you know, 1.5 liter turbo Accord, I think. And in some cases, in some ways, maybe even slightly better because it does have a, a bit more low end torque. Um, one of the interesting things that they've done on this one, on this new generation, um, is that like the Insight, the, the latest Honda Insight that we talked about uh, a few weeks back, uh, this one uh, has its battery mounted underneath the rear seat. So, you know, if you've looked at, you know, some of the hybrid midsize sedans over the last, you know, seven or eight years, you know, since I think since the first um, Fusion hybrid came out, you know, and the, the original Camry hybrid, one thing, you know, one one characteristic that all those cars had in common is the the battery was usually mounted in the trunk area. And, you know, so it would take up some of your cargo space. And it was also, you know, it was typically towards the front end of the, the trunk floor uh, up against the back seat. And, you know, if if they happen to if the manufacturers happen to retain a folding rear seat uh, from the, the standard models, you, what you usually ended up with was a narrow slot to stick longer objects through. So, you know, if you had something bigger you wanted to load in there, you might be out of luck. Um it be, with the battery now mounted underneath the rear seat, the trunk doesn't lose any of its cargo volume. It's got uh, about 16.7 cubic feet of cargo volume, which was plenty even for all the stuff that uh, my wife and I took along for our, our week-long road trip last week. And Wait, how, how much? 16.7 cubic feet. That's, that's, it's that's, a big trunk. Yeah, and that's it, a good trunk for any mid-sized car i mean yeah and it's it's very nicely shaped too you know there's there's a couple of nooks you know a couple of you know little cavities uh in the corners um behind the rear wheel arches uh but the rest of it you know is basically just a big box so it's really easy to pack lots of stuff in there even with the sloping sort of coupe like roof line um, yeah you know i mean the the you know the 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 trunk the length of the trunk lid you know, is not that long, you know, because the, the roof line kind of sweeps back almost to the, the trailing edge of the trunk lid. Uh, but the opening is still plenty big. It's wide uh, and it's tall. You know, it's basically the full height. Uh, so it cuts down, you know, right to the bumper, almost to, almost level with the cargo floor in the back. So you can you can slide in, you know, you can put, um, you know, like uh, carry on size suitcases, you know, standard carry on bags standing on their side, you know, the way that you're supposed to put them in when you get on a plane, you know, don't put them on their side, on their, on their, on the back, stand it up on its side, you know, especially if you're in a newer plane that's got this the bigger bins so you can get more like bags in there. to you, Sam. Have you yes. been traveling? <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. Uh, so you can, you know, it's tall enough that you can stand a carry on bag on its side um, and you can put like three or f at least at least three and probably four, I think four across uh, in between the wheel arches. So it's a, it's a really good size trunk. Yeah. That's uh, pretty big. Yeah. Plenty of space in there. Um, plenty of backseat room as well for, you know, for three adults. Um, you know, although even though there was only the two of us in there, uh, you know, the, all, you know, all the, all the, the ergonomics in the front are, you know, generally quite good. I had no real, no real issues with it. It's got a proper rotary volume knob and tuning knob for the, for the audio system. The, the one, the only real issue uh, that we had with it, and I, it seems like there's a bit of, you know, some bugginess in the infotainment system software uh, related to Android auto. Um, 
you know, and one 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 nice characteristic that the Accord has, and I think some of the other newer Hondas have as well. In most cars that have support for Android Auto or CarPlay for smartphone projection systems, uh, there's usually more than one USB port, but typically only one of them is actually connected for smart, you know, to have the the smartphone capability. Um, the others are usually just to provide power for charging. Um, in this case, there's one there's one USB port in the the bin at the bottom of the center stack and another one in the center console and both of them support plugging in phones and so you can you can plug in two phones you know so if you and your your uh, traveling companion you know want to both plug in your phones and charge them you can also you know in the menu on the screen you can uh, nominally at least switch back and forth between uh, the two phones. So if you want to listen to something off of one phone for a while and then switch over to the other one, you can do that without having to unplug and replug and, you know, go through all that nonsense. You, know, you just switch over from one to the other. That's pretty clever. Can you, can you use like fancy stuff? Like use one as the Bluetooth audio source and the other as the phone? Um, no, no. <laughs> no. That, like sometimes I it's, have, it, have that yeah, I mean, you like, can, yeah, you can yeah. you can plug in, you know, the two devices and both of them are connected, but you can only you can basically use one at a time. So you can't use functions from both phones simultaneously. Well, that's the next step for them. They should get on it. Yeah. Well, actually, the next step should be fixing the the bug where um, everyone from time to time, you know, uh, when you stop and, you know, turn off the car to go make a pit stop and then get back in the car. Uh, sometimes it just didn't recognize the phones, uh, either one of them. Uh, sometimes it would, it was only one phone that it wouldn't recognize. Sometimes it was both phones. So what did and, you do then? Did you have to repair? Uh, no, just, you know, I had to unplug and replug. Actually, it usually took an ignition cycle before it would recognize it again. So, you know, once I saw this happening a couple of times, um, you know, I would, before driving off, I would, you know, check to make sure that it was recognizing at least one phone. Um, you know, and then if it wasn't recognizing a phone, then I just, turn it off and, and restart it. Um, and then it would usually work. And, you know, this, I'm pretty sure that this is a bug in the, in the Honda infotainment system, uh, in their software, because, you know, we were doing it. We had a couple of different cables. I tried swapping them around between the ports, two different brand, two different types of phones. Um, and also my friend, Rebecca Lindland from, uh, Kelly blue book. Um, she was also, she also drove up to Traverse city last week in an Accord hybrid. And, you know, she had a similar issue in her car as well. So I'm pretty sure this is a software bug and hopefully Honda will get it sorted out pretty soon. But aside from that, swearing, uh, yes, I, I as as usual I did do, I did do that, uh, okay. but that uh, and and sadly as usual it had no impact whatsoever. Did you feel better? Um, <laughs> slightly, only slightly. <laughs> it, it did it did relieve a little bit of stress. Yeah. Um, so um, did you try? And, and that's always a good thing, right? Yeah. Of course. I look. I mean, swearing swearing is a necessary thing. It it. Uh, Hey, they say that it's actually a sign of intelligence. Yeah, it's cathartic. Um, And I choose to believe that, you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So with uh, with driving. uh, One of the things that they that Honda talks about that's kind of slick is um, you can control the amount of regen with the paddles, the shift paddles. 
yeah, you can do that. Um, and you know, it's, it's got program, you know, it, it programs, it's programmed in, you know, with simulated shift points, um, you know, as many other CVTs are, um, you know, this isn't, you know, a, like a traditional steel belt CVT uh, because it's a hybrid. It, it's a power split hybrid, uh, two motor power split hybrid, similar in function to the, the Toyota and Ford systems and, and GM systems, um, you know, but it can it can simulate uh, different gear ratios uh, based on how how you're controlling the motors. And you can also get some extra regen. Uh, and, you know, from, you know, from a week of driving, I think put uh, close to 700 miles on the car. I averaged 41 miles per gallon with it, uh, which is pretty impressive for, you know, for a big, you know, fairly large um, sedan, family sedan that most of the time was, you know, fairly loaded up with stuff. That's a little bit off, though. Like they say you should get 47. Average. Yes. Yeah, the yeah. EPA label is 47, 47, 47, 47. Uh, you know, I, you know, was not particularly trying to hypermile it. Uh, so, so I was just going to say lies, lies, lies. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I was, I, you know, I was driving relatively briskly, uh, but not at insane speeds. Um, you know, and, you know, was, I was keeping up with the flow of traffic on I-75 heading northbound. Uh, so, you know, take for that, you know, take that for whatever you will. Um, and I got, like I say, I got 41 miles per gallon, which I certainly would not complain about. Yeah. I like Honda has managed to take the weird because they had some weird in their hybrids. You know, it went back to the insight that was just, it was a little bit wacky and that's why people still love the original insight. Uh, but that, that sort of infused all of the, their other hybrids for a while you know, they had the IMA system. This doesn't sound like right. it's that IMA. was more that was no, that was more of a mild hybrid system. So that that system, you know, you had uh, an electric the electric motor was, you know, it was a disc shaped electric motor that was hard coupled to the end of the crankshaft. Um, yeah. And you could never really get true electric drive out of it. Um, they could do what they called motoring with it, where it would cut off the fuel flow. But even when you were running just on the electric motor, it was because it was hard coupled to the crankshaft, it was still turning the engine over. Uh, so it was cranking the engine, you know, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't get uh, as much electric, you know, power as, as you otherwise would in a system like this one. When on the previous generation Accord, they introduced a, a, two mo a proper two motor power split hybrid system, um, you know, where one motor acts as the primary traction motor, the other one primarily acts as a generator, but it can, you can couple, you know, you can couple the two together and, and get power from both. Uh, so it works more like a Toyota system or, or a Ford or GM system. Is that, that what way. this one is? Or is this just yeah. a, a no, one motor? No, this this that's what this one is. All all of Honda's um, aside from the um, aside from the NSX, um, all of Honda's newer hybrids are are based on this system. So uh, the Acuras, uh, you know, the MDX and the RLX uh, are using the same basic system, uh, two motor hybrid on the the front axle and then they in those in the case of those vehicles they also have a third motor uh which is used uh on the rear axle for all-wheel drive uh and then uh on the hondas on the insight and the accord uh it's just the two motors on the on the front axle so the two motor hybrid drive unit on the front axle and they're just front so wheel drive they, only yeah have they managed to like make it the best accord hybrid yet at a time when uh, 
I don't know. Like it almost feels like it, it's kind of a, an irrelevant model at this point. But maybe that's just me. You know, like the Honda Accord in terms of hybrid sort of fell off my radar. Like, I don't think of the Camry hybrid either anymore. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and that's, you know, I think probably uh, a symptom of the fact that just in general, car buyers are uh, increasingly not thinking of sedans at all, you know, as opposed instead of uh, crossovers. So, you know, I, I think, you know, I'd, I'd say, you know, this is a, a very good car. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll be curious to see how the insight does in terms of sales. I mean, the, the insight is basically a new civic hybrid using the same system. The main difference, uh, between this one and the civic, the hybrid drive system is the same. Uh, but the civic or sorry, the insight <laughs> wanting to call it the civic, the insight, uh, uses a 1.5 liter engine instead of the two liter. Uh, so it doesn't have quite, a, quite as much power as this one. This one did feel, um, more refined. Uh, then in the insight, it was it was certainly quieter. The powertrain was quieter, uh, you know, even when it you know when it wasn't running in EV mode. You know, when when the engine was running, this one did seem a, a bit more refined than the 1.5 liter in the insight when I drove that. Um, you know, so it, it was a it was a great car to drive. You know, and um, the 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 other you know the one I had was the touring model. You can also get it as an EX or the base uh, Accord hybrid model. Um, the one main difference between this one and um, the standard uh, two liter turbo touring model is the the, um, the the gas engine versions, the the higher trim levels, the uh, the EXL and or the Sport and the uh, touring come come with 19 inch wheels and tires and the hybrids. All the hybrids are on 17s. So um, you do get a little bit more uh, ride compliance because you've got more sidewall, uh, which can also be very handy when you're uh, driving on Michigan roads. Uh, because <laughs> as it turns out, um, the morning before we left for Traverse City, um, I was going around checking the tire pressures in, in all the cars. And uh, I took a look down at the left front tire on my wife's uh, Civic and noticed a, a bulge uh, in the sidewall that should not have been there. Uh, and this is, you know, not the first time something like this has happened. It often happens when you hit the sharp edge of a, of a pothole. Um, so, you know, having 17 inch wheels definitely makes it a little more, uh, a little less likely that you're going to have issues like that um, when you, when you hit uh, potholes so, because the tire itself can absorb a little more yeah. of that energy. Oh, I, I like sidewall because like at the end of the day, you don't really need much more than a, a 17 or an 18 inch wheel and tire you know you, you even though cars are heavier now too you probably don't need a tire much more wide you know much wider than a i don't know maybe a 255 or 235 section depending on the weight you know it, it's it's funny you get those giant 19 20 inch wheels they're really heavy Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, they, they, they degrade the ride quality and they also degrade the handling because they add a lot of extra, uh, unsprung mass. Yeah. So, you know, but you know, the, the thing, the thing that originally drove the increase in wheel sizes, you know, when they started going from 14s to 15s and 16s and 17s was the need to accommodate bigger brakes, you know, cause they wanted to add bigger brakes on these things. Um, but unfortunately, you know, um, they realized, Hey, you know, or a lot of people thought these things look pretty cool. And so they kept making the wheels bigger right. and bigger, even though they didn't need them to, 
to accommodate the brakes. Uh, and so, you know, now you have 20s and 21s and 22s, which is just, you know, it's, it's stupid. Enormous. I, I mean, and you get the, the funniest thing, too, is like the big, tough looking wheels. And you see teeny tiny brakes behind. Them. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the thing that looks ridiculous. Um, although the car I have this week does not have teeny tiny brakes, but we'll talk about that one next time. All right. It's well, got it's got 15.7 inch front brake rotors. Uh, yeah, that's bigger than the wheels I had <laughs> on my first car. So, yeah, uh, that's, that's great. <laughs> Um, well, it's funny. The The night before we, we headed up to Traverse City, I went to um, Bob Boniface's Cars in My Yard party. And this is uh, Bob is the uh, global uh, global executive director of uh, design for Buick. Um, and uh, we had uh, we ran an interview with him last year uh, after the New York Auto Show, after the uh, release of the new Enclave. And um, so he he holds this annual party uh, in his yard, you know, where people drive in and they park their all kinds of really cool cars um, in the backyard of his house. He has a rather large yard. Um, and um, yeah, and you've got you've got pictures of this on your uh, where did you put them? You, uh, I've you got some on photos on Instagram. And it's, oh yeah, that's right. So you yeah, were, I'll, you were I'll, put a, I'll put a link to some of them up there on the site. On our, there were some our, really nice cars there. Oh yeah, uh, and you know Bob's got some some cool cars. Um, but you know one of the one of the cars that was there was a fully restored uh, 1973 Fiat X19. It was just fantastic condition. But the funny thing about this, you know, this is a little mid-engine sports car. You know, and if if they were building the X19 today, you know, it would probably be riding on 17 or 18 inch wheels. Uh, but this one was on 13 inch wheels with, um, you know, four lug, uh, four lug hubs on there. And, you know, they're, they're just tiny. And it's actually, you know, if you have an older car like that, uh, I was talking to the owner. It's actually really hard to get tires for these things anymore because they're so small. It, that's true. And you can't get. Uh, like you, if you can get a tire that will fit, you can't get any kind of performance compound or anything. You just have to do no. what you get, you know, yeah. and it, it kind of sucks. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you usually end up having to go with some of the, um, some of the oddball, well, uh, you know, some of the specialty brands, let's put it that way, you know, companies like Avon, you know, you know British company that, you know, they still make um, smaller, you know, they, they make tires for a lot of older cars like that, um, you know, and they, you know, they make essentially kind of, you know, reproductions or, you know, or at least they, they match the tire sizes of a lot of classic cars so that, you know, uh, and there's a, there's a few other brands that do that as well. But uh, yeah, it's there. There were some amazing cars at that at that party. Uh, Ralph Gilles was there, and uh, actually, um, I, I chatted with him, and uh, we're going to have him uh, joining us as a guest on the show, uh, come hopefully pretty soon. Um, he was there. Uh, he, he brought his uh, Lancia Delta Integrale Evo One. He has uh, a Delta Integrale. He has a Delta Integrale, and. Oh. Uh, um, and he, he had it parked next to Bob's, uh, Integrale HF. So the HF was the original Integrale and then they did two Evo versions of it. Uh, Ralph has the, the, uh, Evo one and then, uh, I haven't seen an Evo two recently, but, uh, Good. so there were, there were two, two deltas parked next to each other at this, this party. Good for them. Good yeah. for, I, wow. Uh, I mean, the last time we talked to Ralph, because we, we um, I think me and Zach Bowman talked to him back on the Autoblog podcast. Uh, 
he's just a really nice guy. So oh, I'm yeah, excited he, to have him is. back on. Yeah. So we'll we'll get him scheduled pretty soon. Uh yeah, and we can we can talk all things design. Yeah. Um so what about you? Of, what have you been driving? Yeah, I was gonna say that's a good pivot because uh I had a I spent all of last week uh with a Raptor, a uh, Ford Raptor, which if anything, it's certainly an outstanding piece of design. Uh this is a I mean it's it's a pickup truck that uh, is designed to be the Mustang of pickup trucks, I guess, like the Mustang GT of pickup trucks. Uh, and, More and like the GT500, I think. Uh, OK, yeah. Um, it's a big brute. <laughs> it, it is. And and I don't mean that in like the way of like the old lightning where it was sort of supposed to be some sort of like performance car equivalent. It it has performance for different uses, um, usually on, you know, unpaved roads. Uh, but it's it's just when you start to appreciate what Ford has done with the Raptor and, and how well behaved it is in pretty much all conditions, because, I mean, I commuted with it and it was it was fine. It's actually pretty buttoned down on the road, uh, which is impressive because it has, you know, a long travel suspension and it has those fancy, uh, you know, I think they're Fox shock absorbers with the external uh, reservoirs and stuff. You know, it's got some serious hardware on it. Uh, but it's it's pretty much comfortable in just about any situation you can throw at it. Uh, it's certainly most comfortable in the dirt, <laughs> uh, where I did. Which I is did what it's designed for. I mean, yeah, you know, when they, when they yeah. first built the Raptor, you know, they took basic uh, basically stock one. They just added some safety gear and ran it in the the Baja One Thousand, I think, or or the Five Hundred. Yeah, and, and like it's just you know it it rides with. All a lot of discipline, no matter where you are. It it steers very precisely, actually. Uh, you know, it's it, it's not like a truck with a big engine and, and a lift kit. It's it, it's really well sort of uh, well developed. Um, so it's it's easy to drive and it packs a lot of performance. That EcoBoost three point five is an amazing engine. Uh, everything I drive it in, it's just it's very impressive. It's got torque right away. And it's, you know, it sounds excellent in the Raptor. I think they've got bypass valves in the exhaust. So when you rev it up, it gets louder and like progressively uh, less muffled. <laughs> uh, so it's all proper engines should. Absolutely. Like uh, under under overpasses is a great place. You know, like when you get <laughs> off like a highway cloverleaf and then you've got to pass under the highway. Mm -hmm. It, that's great because you've got a little bit of a lane to, you know, you come out of the curve and you, you just lay into the power and it's revving at the right speed as you go under that under, oh, underpass to just make plenty of noise. It's good. It's a good truck. Uh, it's also $68,000, so it yeah. should be good. Yeah, it, that, it absolutely should be. Uh. It's interesting to, you know, to look at how, you know, performance trucks have evolved over the last 25 years or so, you know, I think, you know, kind of one of the, one of the first ones, you know, you know, you, you talked about it being, you know, more sophisticated and refined, you know, one of the first, you know, performance trucks was the, uh, you know, the original GMC Typhoon or was it the Cyclone? It was the Cyclone was first. The Cyclone. Yeah. The, the Typhoon, the Typhoon was the SUV version of it. And the, but those were amazing. <laughs> in in their own crude way, yes. I mean, yeah. it was wickedly fast in a straight line for its time. Um, but it, you know, it was, you know, it 
couldn't really turn, couldn't really change directions very well, uh, couldn't really stop very well. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like they're wickedly fast in a straight line now. I think I think yeah. the cyclone would do zero to 60 in four point three seconds. That's yeah, it was, it was really fast. fast. Yeah, <laughs> um, um, that's but that's Corvette you know, so, fast. I mean, yeah, I mean, so you you know you went from you know this little hot rod compact truck, and then you had the uh, the Chevy four fifty four SS. You know where they put yeah. a big block into the full size truck. Yeah, you know, and then you had a couple of generations of F one fifty Lightnings uh, for a short time for a couple of years. Um, Dodge was building uh, a, a Ram SRT with uh, a Viper engine <laughs> uh-huh. in it. You know, well, so it was an eight, an eight it, yeah. liter Viper V10. Well, it was a little different than the Viper engine. It was a cast iron version of the Viper. But yeah, basically. yeah. But I mean, it still, it had the same compared to the the version that they normally put in the heavy duty trucks. You know, it had basically the same. Top, it had the top end from the Viper engine. Yeah, which is uh, like, with the iron block. It just makes me laugh because that like that Viper engine. It's such a roundabout kind of thing. The, I'm you maybe you know better than I do, but the the apocryphal story is basically that V10 started life as a 318 or 360 in an LA small block, and they added <laughs> a couple yeah, more. Yeah, I mean it, it, share, it shares the bore spacing and um, you know and the the deck height and everything with the. Uh, with the 318 360 small block which i mean i guess it makes a lot of sense because it can you know it can run down the tooling right uh yeah and you know some you know some of the i think the first prototypes they built you know they they literally you know handcrafted uh prototype blocks for the first ones that they tested you know and literally welded on extra cylinders and and built a custom you know machined a custom crankshaft for it um but you know, then that and that was before they started casting the the proper V10 blocks. Uh, but you know, it, it was you know it was originally the the engine was originally designed for the trucks. You know, it was meant only for the trucks. It was never meant to go into a car. You know, and then they they decided to build a concept car around this engine to, oh, to showcase funny. the engine. You know, <laughs> and that was the 1989 Viper concept, and it was such a hit at the first North American International Auto Show that they said, okay, well, I guess we better build this thing. <laughs> that's that's funny. It's funny Ford never did that with their modular V10. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, 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 well, they, they actually, they did build a concept. Uh, I don't know if you remember the GT90 concept. I do. I remember actually going to the New York Auto Show in 1995 and seeing that with the weird, and they, wasn't that the year they had the holographic head and as part of the display? I, I think, uh, could be. I, yeah. I, I can't remember. So, and the GT90 was like this cobbled together. The story behind that car is like, yeah, we just we needed something. So we threw it together. Yeah. And, well, you know, and the, the engine in that was a V12. It was a Paraduratex, right? Uh, no, it was actually um, it was a, a pair of uh, uh, modular V8s each with a pair of cylinders chopped off of it. So they oh. took, they took, you know, six of six of the eight cylinders of a, mo- of a modular V of two modular V eight blocks and welded those together. <laughs> I don't think that was ever actually a functional engine. Um, not that I'm aware of, but um, you know, that for at least for the show car, that was what they did yeah. is, is put them together that way. Uh, you know, later there, there were, there were actually, um, uh, V12s made from two Duratex, you know, which what what eventually became the Aston Martin V12. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, you know, and I think maybe some of the early prototypes were, you know, blocks welded together. Uh, but that, you know, that one, they actually turned into a real engine, a real production engine. And, you know, they still use that, you know, to this day. Um, and it's, you know, it's evolved a lot over the years, but that's, you know, still, uh, it, it has its roots in the original Duratec V6. Uh, there you go. Contour SVT heart. <laughs> but, but, you know, with, uh, with that tangent, you know, I mean, where I started, where I was going with this, you know, was, you know, we started, they started off with these crude, relatively crude sport trucks. And, you know, it wasn't until the original, you know, the first generation Raptor came out that, you know, you really had something, you know, they decided, you know, none of those were, you know, they, they had very, you know, they had, um, they were popular among a very small group of people because they, they weren't really very useful. Those, those early sport trucks, you know, most of them sacrificed most of their payload. They didn't, couldn't really tow very well. They didn't handle very well. So they weren't really actually very useful as trucks. Um, you know, and it wasn't until Ford developed the original Raptor that, you know, you finally had a high performance pickup truck that, you know, could actually do something. They said, okay, enough of this nonsense with trying to build, you know, a hot rod street truck, you know, what, you know, what do people want a high performance truck for, you know, for off-road racing? And so that's what they built. And, you know, now the second generation one, you know, takes it to a whole new level. And I think, you know, that's, that's why it's been so successful. You know, the, the Raptor is actually sold, sold way better than Ford ever expected to. Well, I think also the thing that they have smartly done is uh, they've made it versatile. You know, yes, it's, it's certainly in its element off-road. And I did some mild off-road driving with it. And, you know, you can pitch it into a corner and it, it doesn't mind where there's there's low traction. You can it's very controllable, very benign. You know, it's it's set up right for doing that kind of thing. But on the road, it's also pretty well behaved. You, you, you got to you have a lot of truck there and a lot of power. So you can't corner it like it's, say, a Mustang. But on the other hand, well, yeah, especially considering how high up it is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and compared to a Mustang, it's, you know, it's actually pretty soft. You know, it oh, it's very soft. Thing, yeah. That was the thing I, I was surprised by when I drove it. It, was, it actually feels kind of mushy. It, it does. And they've all felt like that. And, and uh, that was sort of my biggest sort of bone of contention with the Raptors. Like it's set up soft. So if you actually were to use it for, uh, work, you know, like towing or, um, you know, using the, the, the payload and stuff, the softness might work against you. Uh, but I, I don't know. Cause I didn't, I didn't pull a trailer with it or anything. Uh, and I honestly, I didn't look at the tow rating, which I'm sure is lower than an, an, a non Raptor F one fifty, just because of the, the way the truck is set up, but it's really benign in terms of its handling. And it's, it's well, uh, well behaved so it's not that you can't use it for work and i think that's why it, it works out pretty well uh it's maybe not your fleet truck if you, yeah <laughs> but it's it's something that well, you know no, it's, you, it's it's for the owner of the right. fleet you know the guy the, the guy that owns the contracting company right but so the, the landscaping company he can still throw his stuff in the bed and the, you know the bed is decently sized this was a four-door so it's enormous inside and it's got the i think it had the five foot bed which is still you know usable for for most of the stuff uh, a lot of people are going to do with it and you know it has it has all the the built-in trailer brake controller it has the trailer uh you know the the backing up assistant kind of thing um 
you can use it for most of that stuff uh, that, you know, it's it's not what you, what you're if you really need a like a, a heavy duty truck. Yeah, it's not your truck, but neither is an F-150. You're into the super duties or an HD pickup or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, with with the, you know, an F-150 with the three five EcoBoost, you know, is rated at like twelve and a half thousand pounds towing capability. Yeah, it's, it's the towing is is silly on yeah the the trucks these days uh you know i used it as a tractor i put it in four-wheel drive low and we actually it's funny you talk about stump pulling torque i pulled out a stump with it (laughs) (laughs) over the weekend uh and it was it was happily happy to do that uh and actually i really enjoyed sort of the control of of four low and and just like you can put the truck anywhere you want uh when you're in that mode and and off-road it's it's got big mirrors good visibility uh, the steering is nice and progressive. And when you're and on rough terrain, the towing it doesn't capacity kick. is 8,000 pounds for a Raptor. Uh, see, that's not great, but it's not bad either. You know, it's, like, it's more than most people are ever actually going to use. Right. Um, and the powertrain is certainly up to it. So really the, the limit is base is the way the chassis has been set up. Cause yeah, you, you just, it don't tow too much with a Raptor. Just enjoy it for what it is. Um, if, you, if you want, if you want to tow stuff all the time, you know, buy buy an F one hundred and fifty diesel. Yeah, um, you know, I guess my biggest criticism is that it's still an F one hundred and fifty, but it costs seventy thousand dollars. And as nice as well, it is, not, but the, even at that, it's by no means the most expensive F one hundred and fifty. That's crazy. It's like mm. it's it's n- you can you can get up you know into the close to ninety grand for an F one hundred and fifty limited. I think. Oh, why would you spend that much on an F one hundred and fifty? Whatever, whatever the highest trim level is. Oh, that's so much money. <laughs> I mean, here's I I'm not a fan of the F one hundred and fifty. It's a great truck, but I I don't think the interior is as nice as other pickups and you know i don't think they drive quite as well a raptor aside i just they're they're not they're not my pickup of choice um the the raptor drives exceptionally well so i really liked that i love the way it looks uh this was a nice red one it just it it looked fantastic i love the way it sounds it's like the raptor itself like I, I'll give it the little chef's kiss. It's a, it's a great truck, and it's it's perfect uh, for for what it's for. The interior isn't seventy thousand dollars worth of niceness. It's still an F one fifty. They've they've you know added some some accents and some stitching and stuff, and the seats are very comfortable. Uh, but it's you know it's still an F one fifty interior. So yeah, whatever. Um, you know that aside. It's very well thought out in there too. You know, it's it's got uh, a lot of a lot of storage space. It's got the, a lot of connectivity. Sync three is kind of tedious, but uh, it's better than other syncs have been. So they're they're working syncs in my Ford Touch and whatever. So they're, they're working on it. One thing they need to stop doing is showing an animation of the thing you're doing, <laughs> like. I don't need to see a thing that shows where I've set the volume or the fan or whatever. Just don't show it to me. I can tell. I can tell. I don't need to see it on the screen. <laughs> um, and Sync 3, the, my biggest issue with Sync 3 is that uh, 
you know, you're sort of like your cognitive load is is higher because you have to remember how to navigate the system for stuff that you want to get at that should be just there. You know, they've they've got hardware buttons, some hardware buttons for the, the radio. But if you wanted to switch sources or something, you have to hit the home button and then go to the source button and then select the source. So there's th- like three sort of clicks to do to get to the thing you want. And I find that with sync is there's sometimes a lot more uh, button pressing on the touchscreen than you, you really want to be doing. And and each one of those steps you have to remember. Um, so it's, it's a little tedious to navigate, but they can work on that. I'll, I'll let them. <laughs> <laughs> and then this week I just got into a, a Ford expedition max. Uh, so it's kind of like the flip side of the Raptor. It's the same, uh, same sort of Ford truck flavor, same engine, as the Raptor, but wrapped in that Expedition Max. Lower, lower output, though. Yeah. Um, man, do I love this thing, though. Like, it's funny because it's it's so many of the same pieces. They're just arranged slightly differently in the, you know, the long wheelbase Expedition. And I think it's a platinum trim. So it, it's very nice. It's actually it's nicer inside than the Raptor was. Uh, and just I, as a family truckster, it drives really well. Again, it's exceptionally well thought out. Um, the dynamic cruise in this one will actually low speed follow, uh, where the, the Raptor would give up. Um, so, you know, some of the equipment is a little bit different, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm very impressed with the Expedition Max. Um, it, it just rides and handles and just does its thing exceptionally well. Uh, so for giant SUVs, like it's a, it's a winner. I, I haven't spent much time with it, so I don't want to say too much about it, but, um, and I've been babbling for a while, and we're 40 minutes into the podcast, so we should move on. Okay. <laughs> Why start now? <laughs> uh, so the first thing uh, I have up on our list is there's been talk of a uh, cafe rollback, which, uh, you know, I, I'd, I've i been boiling in a hot summer right now. We've got fires in California. Uh, the the The... Polar ice caps are melting. Permafrost is uh, more like uh, impermafrost. It's it's melting. There's a lot of but now stuff. Now you can have on. a longer growing season. Yeah, that's you great. can grow more so, food. Right? No, grow more weeds that crowd out the food. Um, <laughs> awesome. You know, so I guess there's there's a couple of schools of thought too. Right? If you're going to roll back fuel economy standards, which I, I don't, th- I, it sounds like automakers are in support of it. But mm, I not, I don't really know. Not really. You know, like it sounds good, right off the off the off the bat. Like, hey, you guys are going to have to work a little less hard. But people still buy fuel economy. Um, it's a it's a thing that we do care mm, about. Not really. Well, they, they may know. say it. You know when when you know when you do consumer surveys, they say, yeah, I'm interested in fuel economy. But when it comes right down to it. They don't actually buy it right, very that, much. That, that's true. That's you know, kind of I mean, like, you, yes, you look I, at sales of, of hybrids and plug-in hybrids and electric vehicles, Americans, at least, you know, whatever they might say, you know, until gas prices spike, they don't really buy fuel economy. Yeah, that, that, I guess that's, that's true. They say one thing and then they do another, like, you know, everybody will repeat, uh, buy low, sell high. And they usually do the opposite. Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, oh, okay. So, but there, you know, the, the, that thing, the thing that it. is really ridiculous about this, you know, so in case you missed it and I don't know how you could have, um, you know, essentially, you know, uh, EPA and NHTSA announced last Thursday that, you know, they're, they're going to freeze the fuel economy standards at uh, the 2020 levels, which is about 37 miles per gallon. Which is like, uh, it's, that's not terrible. That, like, I, I will say, I'm, I'm glad that at least they're freezing at, at something above 16. <laughs> well, the, the, the only reason that they're doing that, though, is because they can do that without any action, action from Congress. Because, in you know, the 2007 uh, Energy Independence and Security Act, which, you know, uh, is what drove the increase in fuel economy standards. You know, in that one, you know, Congress mandated that fuel econ- you know, corporate average fuel economy had to uh, increase to a minimum of 35 miles per gallon by 2020. And, you know, then, you know, it, once once you pass the law, then it's up to the regulatory agencies to actually implement it. Um, and so they, uh, you know, when when they started doing it, they had the you know EPA and NHTSA talked with CARB and the auto industry and they came up with this formula. And, you know, they came up with, you know, increasing to fifty four and a half miles per gallon by twenty twenty five. Right. Um, which is like the, and that was the thing. They they were like, oh, the first part's not all that difficult to hit. It's when it starts to ratchet toward that fifty four and a half that it gets much harder. And then right. it's a, it was a f- five year difference, too. So, yeah, well, and but, the, you know, the thing the thing that they did. Um, this time, you know, is they put in this uh, footprint based formula. So not every car, not every vehicle has to hit 54 miles per gallon. You know, it was, you know, the targets were set, you know, based on, you know, bins of footprint size, which is, you know, basically how, you know, the, the wheelbase times the track of the vehicle, you know, how, how much space does it take up on the, on the road? So larger vehicles like trucks did, you know, had lower standards than a small car. So, you know, something like a Chevy spark, you know, had to hit a much higher target than a Chevy Silverado, uh, you know, and the the assumption at the time, you know, when gas was four four fifty a gallon, was that you know uh, sales of small cars were taking off, and they assumed a lot more small cars would get sold. Instead, what happened was gas price, or, you know, oil prices plummeted in twenty fourteen, uh, and they've stayed relatively low compared to where they were. And you know now nobody's buying small cars; everybody's buying SUVs, which. Granted, have gotten more efficient over the years. They're yeah. much more efficient than they used to be. But everybody's buying utilities and crossovers and pickup trucks. And so it's more of a challenge for the industry to hit those targets um, because they're not, you know, the, the, to hit the overall target because they're not selling as many small cars as they thought they were going to. And they're also they haven't sold as many electric vehicles as they had hoped to by this point. You know, and, you know, for for electric vehicles, because they have effectively, you know, almost or, you know, they they actually like they measure the efficiency of electric vehicles and convert it to um, miles per gallon equivalent right. you know, and, and then factor that in. And the MPG math is like our MPGE math is incredible to me. Like, OK, fine. Like whatever you say, it's just like how many miles does it go till the battery's dead? It's well, I mean, all I, I care about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, as far as the MPG E goes, you know, all they're doing is that you know they they did some uh, testing, figured out that you know how much energy is in a gallon of gasoline, 
and you know it works out to a gallon of gasoline has about 33.7 kilo kilowatt hours of energy you know and so you know they they basically work back you know from um you know for evs for plug-in vehicles they you know they look at okay how how many miles can you um, or how, how many kilowatt hours does it take to go 100 miles? And it's a pretty straightforward formula, you know, to uh, to go from that to MPGE. It's it's actually it's actually quite easy. Yeah, I was I was a humanities kind of guy, so the, this whole like thing is just, is confusing to me. Well, at, at any rate, you know, mo- <laughs> most most EVs, you know, get somewhere you know um, somewhere between 100 and 125, 130 MPGE. And so that's the value that gets used in the cafe calculation. And if you sell more EVs, that can really pull up your average. Well, as we know, they haven't sold that many EVs yet, aside from Tesla. And, you know, so it hasn't helped their average as much as they well, had hoped. Yeah. And the ones that they did sell, those were the so-called sort of compliance cars, where their only reason to exist a, a, was to a lot. A lot of them were, you know, so cars like the Ford Focus Electric, absolutely compliance cars, the Fiat 500E. Very much a compliance car. Uh, the for, the Honda Fit EV, a, totally a compliance car. But, you know, there have also been a bunch of plug-in vehicles, you know, the Chevrolet Volt, the Nissan Leaf, uh, now the Bolt, you know. You know, totally not compliance cars. I mean, they're well, so, they're available everywhere. You know, anybody can buy one. Right. So I guess, like, before we get too, too far off that, the compliance car, I think I've got it right, where they were sold in limited markets only basically to uh to pull up the average or was it to take advantage of um carbon credits or what, like no what was it, it was it was mainly to be in compliance with california's zero emission vehicle mandate oh, so okay, they were okay. primarily only or at least only marketed in california some of them like the focus electric for example was nominally at least you could buy it in all 50 states uh, you know but, you know, Ford dealers, you know, if you went to a Ford dealer in Nebraska, the chances of them actually having a Focus Electric to sell you or wanting to order one for you were pretty slim. Yeah. You know, um, you, know you could find them at, at Ford dealers in California and a few other states. But and that's basically where all of them were sold. Um, you know, similar and some some of them like the, the Honda Fit EV were only offered in California. And, you know, some of them that are still out there now, um, you know, like, uh, you know, Hyundai and Kia's uh, electric vehicles, you know, the, the Ionic EV is only available in California and the other states that follow the California ZEV mandate, the, the zero emission vehicle mandate. You know, so the compliance part was, you know, for, for manufacturers that sold more than a certain number of vehicles in California, they had to sell a certain percentage of plug-in vehicles. And, so, um, you know, the, the, they sold just enough, you know, to meet, you know, to, to hit those targets, you know, and didn't really try to market any more than that because they were losing money on them. And Fiat, right. you know, FCA was a prime example of that. You know, Sergio Marchionne talked all the time about losing $14,000 per car on every 500E sold. Uh, you know, so, you know, he actively told people, don't buy this car because we're losing too much money on it. But he sold just enough. They sold just enough of them to hit their targets. 
you know, so that's that's where the compliance car idea comes from. You know, now we're we're starting to move beyond compliance cars. But one of the one of the things that you know uh, I've been told by by a couple of companies that they were actually lobbying for in changes to cafe were um, you know some more flexibility in how they you know how they do the calculations. And one of the things that they were specifically asking for was if they if they sold um, EVs for use in mobility services, like ride hailing applications, you know, to get more credit for those, you know, so that instead of that counting as one car that you sold, you know, you know, just like any other car, you know, every, every you know, as, as part of the total volume, maybe counted as three or four cars, three or four sales for cafe, the, for the cafe calculation, because in effect, you know, cars that were used in, in car sharing or ride hailing applications, you know, were effectively replacing multiple traditional vehicles because people that are using those applications often uh, were not, you know, buying a conventional car or, or were driving it less. So the overall environmental impact was greater. Well, yeah, yeah. but how did, like, how does that square with the other idea or research that has shown that actually those ride hailing apps have added cars to an already congested they haven't they haven't reduced cars they've added car trips and 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 actual vehicles to the overall mix yes in in a few you know, some places like like new york in particular um it it has put it has contributed to some uh increased congestion um but you know on the other hand you know you're getting more more vehicle miles traveled per vehicle with with EVs or let's put it this way if if more of those miles vehicle miles traveled were being done with EVs as opposed to conventional vehicles so if somebody goes and buys a, a cruise you know and uses it for you know to to drive for Uber or Lyft you know um it's you know it's going to be racking up more miles but it's also going to have a bigger impact so the 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 thing with cafes it's not about congestion it's about you know how much energy we're using how much how much right. how much oil we're using really right. um as not so much about the energy side of it but the, certainly the oil side of it and you know so if you know if those uh ride hailing cars um are electric instead of internal combustion then yes, they're going to be racking up more miles, but in the process of doing so, they're contributing less to, to air quality problems and to energy use. So, you know, that, that was the rationale there. Is I'll buy, that, okay. I'll buy that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so every one of those sold is going to have a greater impact environmental impact. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the current administration said that, eh, we don't care about that. Um, you know, we're just going to roll it back. And the argument that they're using is by by freezing the standard at you know, at the 2020 levels that cars will be more affordable, and then hence you know people will buy more of them and replace more older cars, uh, and as what? a result they will be safer. And they they're projecting making making some crazy projection about saving up to a thousand lives a year. No, they're full of crap. First of all, okay. What older cars? We've just spent like the last five years at like 16 to 17 million cars per year in the U.S. market. Like and they had, you know, cash for clunkers like uh, a lot of older cars have been removed from the roads. Uh, uh, yes, a lot of older cars were removed from the roads, but there's still a lot of old 
older cars on the roads today. I mean, the average age of cars in this country is higher than it's ever been. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's almost like, twelve years, and and there's more you know there's more cars you know more registered vehicles on the road than there's ever been. You know, there's like about two hundred and seventy five million registered vehicles in this country. Yeah, so yeah, I, I I'm not disagreeing with you. Yeah, that, no, I, I that, you know their their math is nonsense, but it's, yeah, you know, it's but just, there are plenty of older cars that could stand to be replaced. Sure, it's just like it's it's specious to say that by so wait 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 why are the cars going to be safer? Because they're newer and they're built to uh, more stringent safety standards than they were. Um, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And uh, yeah. And, and, you know, they have active safety features and all this. So nominally, you know, they should be, they should be safer and, you know, protect their occupants better. Well, but, but yes and no, the, but, the, but, but the, the thing is, right, they go in know, lockstep. Like, well, I don't know. Well, go, ahead, go ahead. Say what you're going to say. <laughs> you know, the, the thing is, the, the, the thing that's so ridiculous about that argument is who is it that, you know, is driving these older cars? You know, it's people who, you know, have less disposable income. Right. Who generally can't afford a new car. The people that are b- driving 10, 15, 20 year old cars, you know, just because you freeze the fuel economy standards, they are not suddenly going to go out and buy a new car and replace that older car. They're going to keep driving that older car until it dies. Yeah. I mean, the best way to encourage people to buy newer cars is to like pay them more. Um the, There's a concept. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I, honestly, like, I every time I think about this, I'm like, well, I I could replace the Crown Victoria with something that is more to my liking. And I'm like, why would I do that to myself? Like, that's a car payment. Like, I don't because you hate yourself. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's why you keep driving an old Crown Victoria. No, I drive an old Crown Victoria because it, it doesn't cost me anything other than maintenance, and that's oh, okay. like that's the same thing with anybody with an older car, like. It, that's and and like the whole idea that you're going to make things safer by reducing fuel economy like you're not like you're you're trading uh one health metric for another because you know all of the other things that go like if you roll back or freeze emission standards um you know basically you've you've stopped making improvements in terms of reducing like ground level ozone and smog and so like people pay for it one way or another <laughs> like you pay in your oh, yeah. health or you or you you know you you pay in in a car accident it's like and what did we have back in say 2005 to 2008 right we had uh, cars that got just very heavy. Well, one of the reasons why they got very heavy was because there were crash standards and safety standards that had to be met and safety equipment that they had to have. And it, it weighed a lot. And when you're building cars from, you know, you know, uh, like different grades, the older grades or less strong grades of steel, like you just need more of it. So the cars got big and heavy. And now, you know, to make them, both meet those safety standards and the emission standards, you've seen everybody brag about how much more high strength steel and ultra high strength steel they're putting in their cars to, you know, do things like reduce the size of the pillars. So visibility improves <laughs> just like uh, make them, you know, make the body in white lighter so that they can add more equipment so that people will have a higher transaction price. And part of that is meeting the fuel economy standards. Like everything works together. 
So if you take the, the efficiency standards out of it, like I, I don't see how that really helps anybody. And at the end of the day, too, like it's almost like an Apollo program set an ambitious standard and and be flexible about, you know, OK, this is unrealistic. They've done that more than once where, the you know, they, they set the EV standard back when they had the uh, the EV one. Right. There was a mandate for EVs then. And that turned out to be unrealistic. So that got rolled back. Uh, so there's there's like set an ambitious standard and, and try to meet it. And, and that's going to make all of the tech better. And it will that will actually that's an area where trickle down actually works. <laughs> so <sighs> I've gotten that out of my system now. <laughs> OK, and we don't need, we don't need to talk about them uh, trying to revoke the California waiver that allowed them to set the EV standard anyway. Um, you can you can read the the article I wrote on Forbes. I'll, we'll, there'll be a link to it in the show notes. Um, the, the other thing that came out of uh, the conference last <laughs> week was uh, SAE. You just totally gave up. I'm sorry. Yes, I did. <laughs> Well, you know, the, th- the thing is, we're going to be talking about this for a long time. You know, you know, this this was just the first salvo. You know, this this is this whole thing is going to uh, turn into a giant court battle. It's probably going to drag on for at least two or three years right. um, before it gets settled. And there's no guarantee on which way it's going to get settled, even with a conservative Supreme Court, because it's going to go to the Supreme Court. And depending on how California plays it, you know, if it's a state's rights case, yeah. um, it, it's not impossible that the Supreme Court could rule in their favor. Yeah, well, so that's the thing, too. If it sets precedent for states' rights versus, like, you know, federal rights, like, that's a sticky situation. Maybe not just for EPA standards. Like, you can use that precedent to apply it to a lot of different kinds of topics. So... Uh, yep, that'd be interesting to watch. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's gonna it's gonna be a nasty fight uh, for for quite some time. Um, so anyway, the the other thing I just wanted to mention briefly was uh, Frank Mancheca, who's the chief product officer for SAE International Society of Automotive Engineers. Uh, last week at uh, the management briefing seminars, uh, said that uh, SAE is going to start um, they're going to start the process of developing uh, some autonomous vehicle testing standards, you know, uh, and pr- testing procedures. So w- what they're not doing is they're not going to define, you know, here's the thresholds for what makes a safe automated vehicle, but they're, they are, um, going to start developing standardized tests that can be used. So you can, you can do comparisons across different vehicles and, you know, hopefully, you know, over the long term. Uh, you know, the, the, the goal is, you know, for those tests to be used, you know, as if, if, and when regulations are developed, you know, these will be the tests that'll be used, uh, to validate the safety of these vehicles. Um, and the, and the other thing that they're also doing is making changes to the way they, uh, to the level definitions for automated vehicles. Um, you know, so there's, um, they now, uh, have, split it up so levels one two or zero one and two which are you know um you know driver assist are actually labeled as driver assist feature uh levels now and level three four and five are partially automated to fully automated uh vehicles so uh, you know anything like um gm super cruise or uh, nissan's pro pilot or tesla autopilot those are you know those are now classified as assist features not not even as partial automation anymore uh, that's like a thorny 
thing to really define, like the, the automated levels have always been sort of tricky um, and open too much interpretation. Uh, so I'm just I'm interested to see how they're going to to say, you know, this is this is a safe automated driving experience. And this is uh, this is one that's a little bit more marginal and how they they manage that yeah well that's the thing is you know they're they're not going to define what the what the threshold is for safe um you know they're going to leave that to to regulators uh to figure out but they're they want to develop the the test procedures so so this is you know this is something that sae is done you know they've done many times over the years you know one of the most recent examples you know a few years back they uh they launched the j uh the j2845 standard i think it is or something like that which is you know it used to be that every manufacturer had a different way of testing their their towing capability for their trucks and so they came up with standardized tests you know so you know if you want to you know make a claim about how much you can tow this is the procedure that you use you know this right. is how you test it so that you know when ford says an f-150 can pull thirteen thousand pounds and you know ram says well ram 1500 can pull thirteen thousand one hundred pounds you know they were both tested by the same methods um you know similarly you know back in the in the 1970s you know they we used to have uh gross horsepower ratings you know when when manufacturers wanted to claim you know they, they tested the horsepower of their engines they would put them on a dyno and you know the engines would have you know no accessories on there be no alternator no water pump you know they would they would have all all the external stuff being fed in so basically they eliminated all the parasitic loads you know and so that's why you know if you look at power figures from the the 1960s you know you'd see these gross horsepower figures of you know 500 horsepower for some v8 engine you know but when you actually put it in a car it was nowhere near that you know, and so they, you know, SAE developed, you know, um, standardized procedures for te- measuring pa- horsepower and torque and the power levels went down, but they were, you know, now they were, they were actually more comparable to, you know, the power that, um, that would be delivered, you know, uh, at least to the transmission, uh, you know, and it, you know, it was measured with all the accessories on there and, you know, power levels, you know, from one manufacturer were more directly comparable to another. Yeah, and now we don't have to worry about it because we know that when they say things like 797 horsepower Hellcat engine, you're getting Hellcat red eye. Yes. You're getting, 797 horsepower <laughs> exactly um because you don't want to be you know you don't want to be gypped for you know a couple of horsepower no you don't want 793 or 772 you you want all almost 800 uh not that you'll ever feel the difference uh um, yeah but it, yeah like are, are you implying that you know a, a model s that can go that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a model s in ludicrous mode and one in insane mode accelerating to 60 miles an hour um yeah that, that I two think tenths any, of a any, second is not going to make a difference no and it, it, it a no matter how quickly you're accelerating or how slowly you're accelerating you're not going to feel a tenth a tenth of a second is is too small uh to notice but also, like anytime zero to sixty really gets below five seconds, and then below four, it, that's all you know is that that is that is fast. <laughs> it, it, you you can't. That's that's just a lot of speed very quickly. 
Uh, but it's all about the bragging rights. It, it is. It's, you it's just want to be able to brag that mine can go a tenth of a second faster than yours. I like to be able to brag that mine can go 10,000 miles without breaking down. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'd like. Uh, you know, the Model X has been fa- uh, the Model 3. I mean, has been fascinating to watch because people are starting to get those and tear them down and, and really like just look at how it's put together. So that, that's that's really fascinating to see. Um, it, it, I'm I'm still baffled by the the claims that was it Monroe that said uh, the the Model Three is like 25 percent margin or something like that. On the, the, the yeah, like second so, yeah, Monroe, Monroe and Associates. You know they they do teardowns and benchmarking, and um, yeah they you know they they claimed. The but the way that number came up, you know, that was basically just for bill of materials. That doesn't factor in any of the overhead costs, any of the R and D costs, you know, uh, or distribution or warranty costs or anything else. So, you know, it's not really a particularly useful number. So I just don't get it. So basically, it's the materials that are in the car. They're making a twenty five percent margin. Here's the cost of parts. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, dif- the difference between the cost of all the parts. Uh, and the the direct labor that goes into it and what they charge for it is about 25%. Yeah, well, which I think is getting eaten up by all of the other stuff. Uh, yeah, and then some. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that makes a little all more right. sense. All enough, right. Enough of that. Yeah. So, And, and, and we're not going to talk about uh, what Elon tweeted today. No, we're not. Um, that, I, I'm not equipped. To, that's a business thing anyway. I'm not, not yeah. equipped to discuss that. Well, it hasn't stopped me from talking about it to a bunch of people today, but that's. Yeah. But that's my well, job. Well, they could listen to you, listen for it. I'm sure that you got on like some NPR show. And oh, well, actually, I was in a meeting when Marketplace called, so uh, I, I didn't get on uh, there today. OK. Yeah. No, they talked to. Who did they talk to you today? They talked to someone from the Washington Probably did. Post. Oh, okay. It was. They, they, probably, they probably called Dave Sullivan and and uh, Rebecca Lindland and and maybe uh, Michelle Krebs. No, nah. Stephanie Brindley. I they, I've heard all of them on market because market marketplace usually occurs on my local station. It starts at six thirty, and I'm driving at that time, so I usually get to hear it. So anyway, okay. Um, speaking anyway. of uh, super positive stuff, car and driver had some layoffs, which sucks. Yeah, unfortunately, um, they they. Cut, had some cutbacks on their digital side. Um, I laid off. I, I hear it's about 13 people. Uh, I know of at least three people who unfortunately got laid off. Uh, Pete Bigelow, who was on the show a few months ago uh, with us, he was their uh, transportation editor, transportation and technology editor. Um, Bank Halverson, who was their environmental editor, he was covering green stuff for CarDriver.com, and uh, Eric Johnson, who was uh, I think. Uh, his title was executive editor of digital or something like that. Um, you know, and you know, he, uh, Eric, you know, has been with car and driver for 11 years. Um, oh, wow. so he, he was not a newcomer, you know, uh, Pete and, and bank had only been there a couple of years. Um, so yeah, they, there was some pretty substantial cutbacks there, unfortunately. And, uh, so if you're, if you're, uh, looking to hire some, some really smart automotive writers, um, you know, there's some, there's some talent out there looking for, looking for work yeah i mean that whole i i never understood how they could screw up the (laughs) the magazine industry so badly there's been a lot of consolidation and there's not not a ton of money i guess in subscriptions anymore but um the way they've divided up there there were some 
some pubs that I wrote for where they had a completely separate uh, digital side of the house versus the actual print magazine. And there was that sort of turf war going on. Like, Yeah, well, I mean, in the early days of, of the you know online stuff, um, that was the situation, especially at Car and Driver. You know, it was like two completely different publications, the, the magazine and the digital side. And, you know, there, there's been, you know, uh, a lot more consolidation over the years. Uh, but, you know, in, in the last couple of years, they did hire a bunch more people on the digital side, but they were producing, you know, so you were, you were getting, you know, the, the magazine stuff was showing up online, you know, and, you know, the bylines from people like Frank Marcus and, and many others, you know, were on the website, you know, but then there was also a lot of other digital only content, you know, which is what a lot of these, a lot of these people were working on. Um, so that it, it was more together than it used to be. Um, but you know, there was some digital only stuff that was also happening and yeah. that sounds like that's where most of the cuts were. I mean, that's, that's too bad. Cause that's, that's your readership in between issues, but uh, yeah. What do I know about well, running a magazine? In a lot of cases, it's your only readership. Yeah, I, I clearly, I don't run a magazine, so what I, I don't know. <laughs> yep. I have ideas though. Uh, all right. Um, we had some some reader emails. You had said. Yeah, uh, I, I, fi- I finally fixed the contact form on wheelbearings.media. Uh, finally figured out what the problem was, why it hadn't been working. Um, and, uh, cause there was, there was a change on the server side that impacted, uh, sending emails. And so I had to set up an SMTP server and all that nonsense that you don't really care about. Anyway, the contact form on the website's working again. Uh, and in the past week and a half, we got a whole bunch of emails. So let's try to answer a few of those tonight. Okay. Well, totally right. unrehearsed, unresearched, just shooting from the hip. So. So how does that differ from anything else we talk I, about? I usually try to do a little bit of research so that I, okay. I can form an informed opinion. All right. Well, let's let's uh, let's get ready, fire and uh, maybe even name. Um, so first one from Tim Martin, uh, Dan and Sam. Uh, enjoy the podcast. Look forward to new episodes. Thank you. And uh, we appreciate that. Um Recently, in uh, March 2018, uh, I purchased a 2013 VW Jetta Sportwagon TDI um, post fix. So this was one that had been had been gotten the the updates to uh, presumably make it compliant with uh, emissions regulations. Uh, and overall, enjoy the car. But for the first time since driving, for the you know, for the first time since driving, I find the front seat in the Jetta to be extremely uncomfortable in any drive over an hour. I've tried all of the different settings, lumbar adjustment, seat height, location of steering wheel and seat, but nothing seems to help. I believe that the main issue is a lack of proper lumbar support, not enough movement in the lumbar region, and short lower cushion length. I have tried adding a lumbar support foam pillow, but it still bothers me. Is there anything I can do besides trying to get an aftermarket seat or finding another car? Any advice would be appropriate. Appreciated. And previous cars that he's owned are a 92 Infiniti Q45. Those were very cool cars. Uh, too bad that was, they didn't sell better. That's the original Q45. That's the original Q45, yeah. yeah. Um, 2003 Beetle TDI, um, a 2003 Honda Pilot, and a 2007 Acura TSX. Um, so, as the previous owner of uh, of a Jetta TDI wagon, you know, of the a uh, couple years older than this one, but it was the same generation, um, you know. 
personally, I did not find the seat uncomfortable. Uh, I know my wife did not. You know, we had ours for for seven years uh, before we sold it back to Volkswagen. Um, and you know, I, admittedly, the lower seat cushion was shorter than I prefer, uh, being of somewhat long thigh. Uh, I like longer uh, seat cushions. But you know, as far as the seat back goes, I never had an issue with it, and my wife never complained about it. But you know, I mean, seats are you know a very personal thing. You know, that everybody's body is is slightly different. Um, you know, and if if it doesn't fit you, you know, short of a, a replacement, I'm not sure what what else you can do. I mean, you got any thoughts, Dan? Um, so this is what year is this? This is a 2013. So it's the the prior generation. So it's before you know before they switched over to the current golf sport. Yeah, wagon. I mean, my initial thought is like aftermarket seats are going to be probably. If you want new seats, that's going to be your your safest refuge. It's going to be expensive. It'll, it'll be expensive. You can get Recaro's or Corbo's or, or something like that. Um, the other thing you could do is get some GTI seats, which may actually be Recaro's. Uh, use GTI that's, seats. Yeah, that's actually a really good suggestion. Uh, they're going to have a bit more uh, bolstering, probably more lumbar adjustment. I don't know how much futzing you're going to have to do to they'll probably bolt in probably not much at all. The electronics and the electric yeah, they, adjustment would be my concern. Like are the wiring plugs different? And will they talk? To uh, I mean, depending on what vintage, you know, of seats from a GTI or, or even a golf R, you find, yeah. you know, I mean, if you find some manual ones, you know, I think a lot of them were, were manual. Um, you know, they're, it may be pretty trivial to hook them up, you yeah. know, and it should bolt right in, you know, because they're all, you know, they're all the same platform, yeah. you know, that, um, that sixth slash seventh generation golf platform. Uh, so it should, you know, if you can, if you can find a GTI or a golf R in a scrapyard, um, you know, one that's been wrecked, um, that's still got intact. Seats, right. And that, that's, that's probably your that's best That's going to be the trick because, if it's been wrecked, it may have blown the airbags in the seats. And yeah, like yeah. this is the whole thing. Like back in the day, we could do this stuff. We could swap the seats. Now they got airbags and sensors um, and stuff. I actually, I think the last couple of generations have not had seat oh, airbags. Really? They, they've, they've moved. Yeah, they've moved to the to the curtain side curtain airbags. Oh, um, I don't I don't think ours. I don't think the Jetta wagon had uh side uh, like the seat air seat mounted air yeah bags. i mean you can put them in the side not. pillar too yeah so that i just remember yeah. with my with my s60s um they had seat airbags like sort of in the side bolsters and i made the mistake of turning the switch on with the seat unplugged from everything the seats were actually out of it Oops. and it it got angry because <laughs> you know it does the power on self-test and it says oh no the yeah. seats seat airbags are not there they're not phoning home um, and then so then it's it's a error message you have to go and clear. Um, so, you know, luckily with the Volkswagen, there's really good aftermarket communities and support. So you should be able to get this question answered. Um, you know, I don't know if the VW Vortex forums are still pretty uh, sort of um, vibrant or if all of that stuff has moved to Facebook where I don't go. So, <laughs> um, you know, there's just community resources that should help you out. And then if you do need to, to sort of crack into uh, the command and control of the car, there's, I think there's VAGCOM, which is 
again, not that expensive and easy to do. So Volkswagen, you're lucky that you're in a Volkswagen because you have a lot of options and you should be able to solve this problem pretty easily. It'll either be, you know, spending some money on aftermarket seats or finding seats from another Volkswagen that you like, especially if it's on or an Audi, right? You can put a four seats in it. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, on any, the same any of those should, or, or a a three. You you'd want them from an A three because they're on the golf platform. Okay, all right. Um, the the A four the A fours might fit as well, uh, but you know if you get it get something from an A three, that's probably going to be the easiest. Right. So, um, and I, I just did a quick search. Um, you know, uh, first listing on on Google uh, was for eBay Mark Seven VW GTI black seats heated front. Uh, front rear set um, along with uh, the, the back seat if you want that too um, full set 400 bucks there you go shipping's gonna kill you <laughs> yeah the shipping's another 200 oh that's not too bad I mean look you're yeah. gonna spend that on a single of a car so and you know that that's that's in uh, well actually you're probably gonna spend twice that much on a single Recaro yeah okay <laughs> I I have and, not priced you know, the car. This, but you know, I mean, these are in Nashville, North Carolina. You know, and, and there's a whole page of these you know of listings that came up. So I, you know, you're not going to have a hard time finding some uh, some GTI seats. So that's that's your there's get your the, answer. Get GTI the tartan seats. ones, tartan must yes. get the tartan ones. All right. Uh, next next question. Next question. Uh, let's see. Okay, Jeremy Crawl asks. Uh, see, let me state by start by saying that uh, we did help. Uh, we answered a previous question uh, about. Uh, how small compact crossovers are. Um, seems the government is just as willy nilly as the car companies when it comes to classifications. Yes, uh, of course they are. Uh, I do like the idea of using the roof line and rear axle for the classification. Uh, anyway, um, was there actually a question here? Oh, uh, he's, he's uh, Jeremy's not in Europe, uh, despite uh, what we apparently presumed the last time. I'll have to go back and listen to what we said. <laughs> he's in uh, he's in Dearborn and works for GM at the Warren Tech Well, that's, I mean, that's practically and, Europe. <laughs> well, yeah, might as well be, right? Um, don't, don't let anybody in Dearborn Heights hear you say that. Um, <laughs> he, he mentions that the Spark Active actually is available in the U.S. Uh, and he's actually take, looked at uh, getting one, uh, but you can't get a sunroof in them. And I, I was not aware of this. I, I had missed this. Uh, you know, so the Chevy Spark is a small uh, Korean built sub subcompact, you know, below the, the Sonic and there, you can get the active trim, you know, that, that adds kind of like faux, um, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the shields, uh, oh, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> um, you know, that you have on SUVs oh, well, like the cladding and stuff. for off-roading. Yeah. Well, the, the cladding, but also, um, uh, I am completely blanking on the the word for the piece of metal that goes under your engine oh, sk- transmission. Skid so the skid, skid plates, plates, yes, faux skid plates that are molded into the into the front and rear fascias and the rocker panels uh, to make it look sort of kind of pseudo SUV like, kind of like the uh, the Toyota Prius C that I complained about some time ago. Uh, so you 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 know that you can. You know, this is another one of these sort of pseudo kind of crossovery things, you know, trying to take a, a car and make it just uh, just that little bit more like a crossover to make it appeal to to those that say, I, I want a crossover. I don't want a car. 
Um, so there, that's, that's an option if you're looking for something small and sort of crossover like, okay. Um, all right. Let's see. Uh, Tyson Nordahl, uh, says, uh, let's see. Uh, loves the podcast. Thank you. Uh, I have a bunch of them uh, that I listen to throughout my work week, but I save yours for the last couple of hours on Friday so I can get, end on a high note. Man, I am sorry your week is so terrible that, <laughs> that our show <laughs> ends your week on a high note. Uh, hopefully your life will get better. Um, anyway, a <laughs> couple of things. Firstly, Dan mentioned again that he'd love to participate in a lemons race, and I'd just like to remind you too that you both have a standing open invitation to arrive and drive with the Vancouver-based Flying Lumberjacks racing team when we head down to the Ridge uh, in the Pacific Northwest every year. And Ridge Motorsports Park is where I went to drive the uh, Civic Type R last year, and it is a great little club track. Um, so, Dan, if you ever feel like doing some racing, you know, we can I, uh, head out to head out to Seattle yeah. and uh, go do some driving. I, I will let them know when I'm heading to the Pacific Northwest. Um, I'm not... Uh, I have no plans to go that far west, but uh, that that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, anyway, nextly, as a 2012 VW GTI owner, I agree with you that the GTI is the automotive good stuff, the Swiss Army knife of Absolutely. cars. Absolutely. And 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 we we've been discussing this with Casey uh, Liss, who, who's promised to come back on the show um, very soon um, to talk about his experiences with the Golf R and soon with the GTI. Um, you know, we've been trying to convince him that the GTI is the better choice for him, despite the fact that um, it only has two drive wheels. Um, yeah, he's well. He's doing this thing. A, he's he's preoccupied with fatherhood, so there's that. But also, like, um, I think what what Casey's doing is getting hung up on the paper specs versus the actual driving. Yes, instead of instead of how it actually feels on yeah. the road. But we'll we'll take that up with Casey when we get him on yeah, the we'll show. Learn him. Um, <laughs> Yeah, let's see. Uh, let's see. Anyways, he says the Swiss Army knife of cars. I can carry people and what have you comfortably and in style, and it's a willing participant in hooliganism up to a point. There's no turning off the stability control, so no lift off oversteer, no getting purposefully out of control in my GTI. Actually, if if you push a GTI hard enough, you can you can get it to to play to swing around a little bit. You just have to to work at it Tire a little bit. Higher pressures, but it but higher pressures. Yes, but you but you 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 actually you know don't have to work at it as hard as you would with a golf r because the the r is so buttoned down with its all-wheel drive and its extra mass that you really can't toss it around you know the the gti is lighter and it is more tossable you know, i mean you, you know it's not you're not going to really get it wildly out of control but um you can have a lot of fun with it uh he loves driving it thinks it's pretty good looking for a hatchback uh that being said i've had it for a couple years now and want to get rid of it uh hey um there's a guy in virginia right. who might right. want it for me <laughs> at least the seats maybe you guys can trade <laughs> as long as long as it's white and has a sunroof yeah uh it's been mostly trouble free and that's how i'd like to remember it uh he's in his late 40s and grew up driving light cheap mostly toyota beaters in the 80s and 90s so i'm kind of nostalgic for an older, lighter, uh, really like the lightness car as my daily driver. That's just some boring backstory for you. Uh, no, it's never, never that boring. Anyway, the point I'm making is that I'm greatly annoyed that direct injected engines have an intake valve cleaning bill waiting for their owners at about 120,000 kilometers. So that's about 80,000 miles. And as I understand it, nearly all the DI engines are effective. Um, 
even Toyotas with two sets of injectors aren't totally immune. Have you guys got any thoughts about this phenomenon? I know I can take off the intake and, and reach in and scrape some of it off, but that's half-assing it and it doesn't do a great job. Uh, to get them back to perfect requires a big chunk of dough at a mechanic shop for most of us. Is it just me who's greatly annoyed by it? I mean, regular maintenance is one thing, but this seems like a glaring design flaw. I suppose it's just the price we pay for more power and lower emissions, but is car companies working, are car companies working to solve the, the gummed up carbon coated intake valve problem uh thank you for your time and uh, true west coast canadian fashion sorry eh, for the long message <laughs> just send the bats and we'll be fine yeah all right so what do you um, think dan yeah i think that they are working to solve the carbon problem that's why there's more than one automaker putting two sets of injectors on it now port and direct uh that's that's part of why they're doing it. The other thing is to meet uh, particular emission standards. Yeah, um, I think that there there are those two benefits, and I I do I do think that once it gets kind of carboned up, solvents may help you, and maybe your mechanic has some special solvent machine that that, that I don't I don't know, uh, but generally the only stuff that's going to work is just like mechanical removal and that's like walnut shell blasting or or something that's not going to tear up the 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 heads but will clean the carbon off um I, I don't i don't have a better solution i haven't run into it personally so uh what's what's your take um pretty much the same you know i don't know that there's any um, any other real fix if, if, you know, if that's a problem that you're actually having, um, you know, I haven't heard of a lot of people actually having that kind of problem, you know, and I think, you know, for DI engines, I don't know that that really should be that much of a problem because, um, you know, the, the fuel is actually being, being injected, um, downstream of the, of the valve. It's, you know, it's, it's more, it seems like it'd be more likely, you know, that you're, you're going to have um, carbon buildup, you know, on a port injected engine where you're injecting the fuel upstream of the valve. Um, well, I think so what the, it, the, the issue is, is that the, the, with the port injection, it's spraying on the valve and the fuel acts like a solvent at that point. So it, it will keep it clean. And, and I think the issue too is mostly on turbo DI engines because you've got that extra bit of oil in the intake tract from the turbo and okay. Yeah, that, that so could it's just be a like problem. with the heat, yeah. once you shut it down, it cokes. So you yeah. run good synthetic oil, I guess. Now that now that I think about it, uh, like Mobile One. Yeah, that, that that would probably help. But you know, what about replace? What about a replacement for the GTI? What do you think? About oh well, that? he likes light cars. So like, has he tried a BRZ? That's a it's a light yeah. possible car. A BR, BRZ or uh, a Toyota eighty six, you know, which is the same car from a Toyota dealer. Um, yeah, I mean those those are those would be a good choice. Although you know, you know it sounds like he's, um, you know, he, he likes the 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 usefulness of the hatchback as well. Um, you know, so there's not uh, not a whole lot of options there. You know, depending on you know how much you're looking to spend. Um, yeah, you know, if you're if you're looking for something new, um, you might want to take a look at. Uh, you know, a Civic SI or, or, uh, you know, if you want a hatchback, get, you know, the Civic Sport. Yeah. Um, I was going to say what, the, you know, the Veloster, else? the new Veloster. Yeah. Oh yeah. Actually. Yeah. The, the Veloster turbo. 
the new Veloster Turbo is is actually really good and uh, it's definitely worth a look. You probably want to stay away from the first generation Veloster, but the new one that's that's just coming out now <laughs> yeah. uh, is, is definitely a, an I excellent choice. I mean, the choice. first generation is, uh, if you get the Veloster Turbo, uh, it's uh, delightful, but it's certainly not refined. Um, yeah, I mean, for for somebody coming out of a GTI, hate it. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but the new Velocer is, is really good, and there's like I think there's like sort of three different flavors of turbo. With the, like they all have the 1.6 engine, but there's three different sort of uh, chassis strengths, I guess, or tuning. Um, where you can you can get a pretty lively car out of it. They've figured a bunch of stuff out since that first Veloster came out, and the new one. By all accounts, I haven't driven it yet. There's one in the fleet, but I, I have, and you know the the new one's got the same multi-link rear suspension that's in the uh, Elantra GT Sport. Yeah, and it's really good. And that, like, that's a good car to drive too. The Elantra GT is good. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and you know it's a it's a good value. Uh, he does say you know he's kind of nostalgic for an older, lighter car. Um, so you know you could uh, you could take a look at an older um pre tsi gti you know those those were fairly light and uh and fun to drive older lighter car i mean the answer is a fox body mustang it's, well yes the, the the answer is always right? fox it's well, light if it it's either miata or fox body right. mustang um and i've having owned both of them um yeah i mean they're the a fox body would be great if you can find one that's i, not I mean that sn95 they, like stuff doesn't really rust up there in the yeah yeah i, uh, I don't know yeah no it does <laughs> they get salt yeah that's that's true depending on where where he lives in bc you know it, it, it could be salty um but i don't think that an sn95 mustang is probably the, the right choice i'm just kind of Scratch my you. There is a wealth of choice depending on how old you want to go. So right back and let us know how old you would if go. You, if you can find like a, a, a 1991 to 93 um, five liter LX, that would that would be. There's your. Car. I mean, that's that's uh, 91 is that's that's a great car, but that's a uh, that you're starting to get into that territory where it's it's like rare ish, you know. Mm, not I'm, really they're they're not i mean th- those that was like the last you know the last iteration of the the fox of the original fox bodies before they went to sn95 which is a fox variation yeah, so i got a couple more spot welds <laughs> yeah um you know so you know those you know the the those 91 to 93 models uh still had the old um 302 the old five liter yep. Uh, V8, you know, he had uh, a Borg Warner T5. Uh, they were remarkably light, you know, especially if you get the uh, the notch yeah, back. The notch, you yeah. know, they were they were they were just over three thousand pounds, <laughs> and uh, they also had you know from from the ninety ones on, um, they had a little bit bigger brakes. Um, you know, they had that was the ninety one was the first year of the sixteen inch wheels. Um, did, which is did they also, that was what I had. I had a 91. Did they have the, the four shock set up where you did control yes. axle hop? Um, yes, it, it was more managed. It was better managed than earlier Fox Box. Yeah, still a mess. I think I think that came in 88 is when they oh, added okay. that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, you get the quad shock rear end uh, with the two horizontal dampers in addition to the two vertical dampers. Um, and they're they're just a hoot to drive. 
Yeah, and I mean, if you so. want a car that will just spin right the hell out from under you and in, in like the wet, <laughs> that's you, you know what I had happen to me. I shut off the traction control in the 370Z I had the other week, and it it did the same thing. Just stepped right out sideways when I I made a tight turn um, during my commute. I, I I my first turn on the commute home is a U-turn. Um, I have a left arrow for it, and the 370Z just went completely sideways. And I wasn't doing anything. It was just like, nope, this is what we're doing. Uh, and I hadn't experienced that since I drove, a, you know, a high power Fox or, or something like that. I forget exactly what it was, but it was one of those like 90s pony cars that would do that to you. And I was just like, whoa, all right, <laughs> guess we're doing that for now. Um, so those are the kind of thrills you have to look forward to with the Fox Body Mustang GT. And and with that, let's let's hit one more email and we'll save a few for next week. Um, you know, and that that's a great transition into this last email from Greg Padberg. Um, and uh, he says uh, in a recent podcast episode, you formerly referred to front wheel drive vehicles uh, as wrong wheel drive, but that your opinion has changed. Uh, the cars have improved. What are the current notable examples of this and which current or new vehicles can still be considered examples of wrong wheel drive? And, you know, cars like that Mustang, you know, of that cars of that era, you know, that's the kind of thing that made front wheel drive wrong wheel drive because you couldn't you couldn't get that the ability to just spin the car on a dime in the wet with a front wheel drive car. It just, you know, physics just did not allow it to happen. And, you know, so you had to have a rear wheel drive car to to have that sort of fun in, in a motor vehicle. Yeah. And anytime I get in the snow uh, with a rear wheel drive car, I that muscle memory of like, oh, here's how you rotate with the throttle and put the car exactly where you want it uh happens where i can't do that with the front wheel drive car because the, the front wheel drive cars are just they're just going to plow off the road nose first no matter where you have the wheels pointed you just you do something wrong you, you're going for a ride um that's like understeer versus oversteer so there are other ways to get a, a front wheel drive car to rotate in low traction but um yeah i mean front wheel drive has gotten a lot better pretty much anything mazda makes no matter which wheels are driven handles properly yeah. And similarly for, you know, Hondas are also really good at this, especially the Civic Type R, um, which Casey will not want to hear this. <laughs> but I, I will say that that is a that is a perfect example of how good front wheel drive has gotten in the last 25 years. Um, you know, it, the you know, the Type R, you can you can turn that thing with the throttle, with the brakes, um, you know, it it really does feel more like a, a rear wheel drive car. I mean, ultimately, you know, it's still going to probably, it's still going to understeer, but you know, when you're driving it hard through corners, um, you know, you can, you can trail break that into corners and ha and bring, you know, gently, you know, in a really controlled manner, bring the back end around in a way that, excuse me, you just could not do with front wheel drive cars, you know, back in the, in the nineties, uh, you know, and a big, big part of that is advances in the, in the suspension geometries, um, you know, especially the, the front suspension geometries, you know, one of the, one of the big things that's happened, you know, almost all front wheel drive cars have, you know, some variation of a strut, strut front suspension, um, because you need something compact in there to fit the engine sitting Except crossways, for that, and, you know, transverse that civic, the civic, I believe, makes a return to maybe i'm wrong but i thought they had returned to a a different front end setup it's 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 still it's it's a strut 
but it's you know one of one of this newer you know on the Type R especially you know the the, the base they're all the, all the Civics have a strut front suspension, but the Type R has a different setup from other Civics. Um, you know, and what they do is um, they've actually um, got an extra ball joint in there, basically, um, so that it separates the uh, the steering axis from um, from the the vertical travel the axis of vertical travel right. uh, so that you you know you, it pretty much eliminates torque steer uh, you know and this is something that you know car makers first started doing about 10 right, years that's the ago hyper strut um, if, you, if you buy a, a GM yeah, the, car. yeah the, the GM the GM hyper strut is an example of that Um Audi was actually one of the first manufacturers to do this uh, on the on some of their front wheel drive cars and uh, starting about the early. Oh, 2000s, but they went they I went think. crazy. They had like eight ball joints in the front end because each each oh, control yeah. arm there was a ball joint on 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 you know it it wasn't they basically split like you think of a arms right so you got two a arms an upper and a lower um, they split it it was two links on top. And there's a ball joint on either one of those. And there's two links on the bottom. It's a ball joint on either one of those. And there's two sides of the car. They probably took it a little bit too but it was, far. It was but, beautiful. You know, that's a German car maker. So yeah, because you'd, you'd watch it all articulate when you turn the wheels and you could just you could see what it was doing. Yeah, And, and the Hyperstrut is like yeah. it does most of that. It's a lot more elegant. It, it does. Like you're saying, it, it, what does it move? The virtual steering axis out to the center line of the wheel. So that, yeah, yeah, so you know, you're basically separating the forces, you know, so that they're not acting against each other so much, and so you you get you know a, a, a much more controlled field. You know, like I said, it pretty much eliminates torque steer, uh, at least within the realm of of power and torque that you have on any of these vehicles, um, and uh, you know the the way the rest of the car is set up is so nicely balanced. You know, you, you can, um, you know, get some, you know, get some mild oversteer, you know, by managing the brake and the and the accelerator, you know, trail braking into corners. You can get the back end to come around a little bit and it's, it's really easy to control and it just drives really well. Uh, you know, ultimately, you know, no matter how sophisticated your front suspension is, you know, if you're having the same set of wheels do the tractive effort and the steering control, you're going to hit a, you're going to hit a wall at some point, hopefully not literally, <laughs> but I mean, you're, you're going to, there's, there's limits, you know, there's physical limits to what you can do, but within, within any kind of reasonable limits of what you're ever going to do on, hopefully ever do on public streets. Um, you know, it's it just, they, a lot, most of these cars work really, really well. well. Uh, you know, mini is another example of, of uh, front wheel drive cars that are set up to, to handle pretty nicely. Uh, and it's different, though, no matter what um, front wheel drive behaves differently than rear wheel drive. And you have to adjust your, your driving style to just manage the physics that are, are going on. Uh, and there's been this proliferation of all wheel drive, too. Uh, and sometimes that can be really surprising. I was shocked at how well the uh, the not even this generation, but the earlier Buick Regal Turbo would handle especially if you shut off the traction controller, put it in sport mode or did both. Uh, I forget exactly what I did, but it, it will actually oversteer um, because it'll, you know, you go around a corner, you stomp on it, it'll transfer power to the rear axle. And, and that car has the split personality where it's like just a front wheel drive Regal when you're just tottering around. But if you, you want to drive it, 
you know, with some some red mist, it, it'll play along. And that was really impressive to me, uh, especially from a Buick. So uh, there's there's yeah. surprises out there if you're if you're willing to look. Yeah. Um, Greg also asked about the Acadies engine. And uh, since we're now at uh, about an hour and 40 minutes, we'll leave that for next time. I, I have talked and written about the Acadies engine in the past, uh, but we'll we'll come back to that. It's a, it's an opposed piston two stroke engine uh, that is actually a really cool design. And, uh, you know, the, the, the people working on it, they're, they're doing some pretty impressive stuff. But we'll we'll get we'll get to that next time. In the meantime, I'll go look at it because all i think of when i hear a post piston is like fairbanks morris ferry engines you know, the opposed piston <laughs> diesels well that's you know the the first applications of the acadies are are like you know they're for marine applications and stationary applications um but they they've built some uh you know they've adapted that to um smaller displacement engines as well and uh they're they're doing some interesting stuff but we'll get to that next time. All right. Engines are cool. I'll go do my homework. Um, all right, cool. Thanks for writing in everybody. Uh, keep writing in. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll catch everybody next week. We are at wheel bearings with no, no vowels, uh, on, on Twitter. Just, just search. You'll find us. Um, wheel bearings, yeah, cast. Wheel bearings cast. That's right. Uh, I don't know who at wheel bearings is. Don't, don't <laughs> write to those guys. Write to wheel bearings cast and put the A in. Uh, I am Boston underscore auto. You are Sam Abul Samid. Uh, no underscores. Yeah. We're, we're everywhere. Um, ish. So, and we're just wheel bearings. Yeah. Media. But, uh, but soon, but soon I won't be on Facebook anymore. I see so. that, that, uh, we can talk about why, but, um, all right, carry on. Thanks for listening. We'll catch everybody next right. week. See you next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.